ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi there. Happy Monday. Selena Green bringing you The Country Hour today and all this week. Coming up very shortly, millions have been spent trying to figure out the best way to deal with Australia's carp pest problem. It looks like more time and money is going to be spent figuring that out. More on that in just a moment. And we'll take a look at why farmers are being seriously encouraged to consider on-farm fertiliser storage options. You can sit down and do some economics around building infrastructure on farm and what that might return you. Um, It's likely to make its best returns in those high rainfall years where larger quantities of um, fertiliser are required, especially nitrogen. Is this something that you've spent time looking at? What did you come up with? Let me know on my talkback number, 1300 891 or you can send me a text on 0467 921. Well, first today, do you remember the National Carp Control Plan? Well, the more than $15 million initiative started back in 2016 to investigate whether or not to release a herpes virus to control the invasive fish in Australian waterways. Well, now, about a year after Fisheries Research and Development Corporation handed down a huge report on this, the federal and state government agricultural ministers have agreed to proceed with further research, which could take a few more years and possibly more funding. Australian Chief Environmental Biosecurity Officer Bertie Henneke told Eliza Berlage the additional research will focus on five priorities. The next step now is actually to go ahead with those aspects and looking at those research. There were about five, I think, priorities that they narrowed it down to, as I mentioned before. And so there will be now scientific committee, advisory committee that will reform, that was already there before, looking at some of the research over the years. They will reform and actually look carefully at these priorities, what exactly needs to be done, what is included in that research, and potentially bring international researchers into this too, so uh, they can complete this research, research. And some of these will be, I guess, a little bit stop and go. So they're really important aspects in terms of is it actually uh, feasible to release the carb virus because at the end of the day, we want to be really making sure that the carb virus is, doesn't cause any risk, so it's safe it is, and, it, and it is effective to be released and actually that's what it's supposed to do. I should also mention, Elisa, that That's only one part of the work that needs to be done. Once this research is completed, then it's ultimately to all states and territories to approve the release of the virus. So it still has to go through some processes in terms of getting approval from the APVMA to release the virus into the environment. And also each state and territory, as well as the environment department, have to go through their approval process under the legislations to make sure that that the virus can be released. So we're still looking at a few years before the virus actually gets released. And have any states or territories uh, indicated that they um, declared or indicated that they would be supportive of releasing the virus? At the moment, all states and territories are still supporting the research, and that was part of the 
ACMIN meeting too, you know, that they all agreed this is worthwhile continuing, so the support is there. But again, it is at this stage, as I said, it's far too early to really have a clear understanding if we're releasing it because there's still some research to be done and then we need to go to those other aspects to make sure that everyone agrees to the release of the virus into the environment because, again, we want to be really sure that it's safe and sound to release the virus and it's feasible, actually, so it's it's controlling CARP and does the job that it actually promised or that we think it should do. And Bertie, you mentioned some um, international researchers would be involved in this research. Were international researchers involved in the previous research? I think there were some considerations. So they were involved in providing advice. Since we're now getting to the point where potentially, and again, this needs to be discussed further by the scientific advisory group, some research needs to be done, field research. And we, we don't have the virus in Australia, so this research needs to be done overseas. And there are some countries, and I understand Israel and some other countries, have used the virus or the, they're using the virus. And so we were looking for potentially bringing some of these expertise in so we have a better understanding how the virus actually behaves and what it does in the field once it's released or out in the environment. And that's, again, as I said, the Scientific Advisory Committee will have to make a decision what impact they want from international scientists, you know, the contributions or the advice they're seeking from them. And that could be just some advice or that they are invited for some of the committees or the, the scientific committees to be uh, to sit on and, and you know provide their advice through those through those arrangements. So you said that this next stage of the research would take a few more years. Uh, will this also require any further funding? We have at the moment, as you may remember, there was $15.2 million uh, allocated to this National Carb Control Plan. And the study by the FRDC and the research report has used about uh, $10.2 million of that. So there's still some funding uh, available to do this extra research. Again, the Scientific Advisory Committee probably has to look at if that is sufficient money for all the research that needs to be done. But at the same time, the priorities that we're looking at at the moment uh, that still needs to be done are potentially stop-and-go research. So if it's not conclusive, then that could be, you know, the the decision-making basically for releasing or not releasing the carb virus. So we see that as as we go along, but at the moment there is still... I think it's about $3.6 million available to do the research. What we're also doing, we're preparing potentially for that if the carb virus is released or not released, that it will be part of an integrated pest management approach. So we, we also, as part of the priorities that we want to look at a little bit further, is other management control, uh, other control management uh, aspects that are used at the moment and strengthening them a little bit too in a way that we have a true integrated management approach down the track to control carpet in our freshwater systems. That's Australian Chief Environmental Biosecurity Officer Bertie Henneke speaking there with Eliza Berlage. It's 12 minutes past 12. 
Well, the Grains Research and Development Corporation is encouraging farmers to investigate on-farm fertiliser storage after some were caught short by supply problems this season. Maybe you were one of them. The corporation has published a guide on investing in storage, outlining some of the options available and the challenges that come with them. GRDC Grower Relations Manager Graham Sandrell says the just-in-time business model of fertiliser supply isn't working. There are a couple of issues. Um, Australia consumes about 2% or a little bit lower than 2% of the world's nitrogen fertiliser. So we're uh, small in the scheme of things worldwide. And of that, that's supplied to Australia, about 92% is supplied in bulk. And ever since the just-in-time delivery model broke down because of COVID, we haven't had that model come back to its pre-COVID status. So supply of nitrogen on farm has been problematic. So those challenges have to be addressed somehow. And one of the ways of doing that is to create a buffer on farm with on-farm storage. Okay, so with on-farm storage, I guess a couple of things in that you, if you've got that stockpile there, you shouldn't get short and then I suppose you're also not exposed to the, the spot market and you might be able to buy at a, at a better price? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things um, that it allows you to do. One is um, you can sit down and do some economics around building infrastructure on farm and what that might return you. Um, it's likely to make its best returns in those high rainfall years where larger quantities of um, fertiliser are required, especially nitrogen. And that's probably the biggest change from, if you look back in history, our nitrogen fertiliser consumptions increase, but particularly in our wetter years. So we're taking more advantage of the yield requirements that we need to hit in, in the higher rainfall years. So um, being able to store on farm, uh, particularly for those seasons, is of importance. But I suppose probably, Graham, I imagine a big reluctance for people to be storing large amounts of fertiliser is that it can be a, a very difficult product to store? Yes, and, and that's why partly why we went into producing this information for grain growers is that we wanted to be able to say um, what storage types you might be able to look at, then how the products, um, their compatibility in different storage facilities, how that might work, the risks that are associated with it, and in particular, what we did is we also looked at some case studies. And so it sort of provides this peer-to-peer -peer learning where we look at what growers have been able to do themselves in different parts of the landscape. And they've, through trial and error, they've improved their own systems and, and we've provided those as case studies in this, in this document. It's interesting, Graham, looking at uh, granular against liquid fertiliser, that liquid fertiliser, for whatever reason, is so much more popular in the West and and not as much in, in the East. Yeah, and that's partly a result of the infrastructure that was initially developed and has continued in the West, um, some supply chain issues um, in the East too, uh, speak to that as well. So certainly in the East, we're, we're much more dependent on granular products such as urea for nitrogen. And of course, um, the storage considerations around that, if relative humidity gets too high, you, you can get, um, you know, that, that can start to aggregate 
form clumps. Um, so there's lots of things to consider. It can be corrosive as well. So there are some storage considerations around that as well, and, and that plays into whether you go for silo or, or shed storage. Graham, you mentioned earlier, I suppose, people applying more fertiliser than they have in the past. Is that, I mean, are we going to reach a point where that levels out or is it just going to keep increasing and increasing? No, look, what we've been focusing on in particular is that in the past we've actually under-fertilised in our higher rainfall years. So we haven't produced as much food as we could have in those years for people. So what we're looking to do is try and optimise our efficiency um, by applying more nitrogen fertiliser and increasing yield for those years. And what it does, if you're more efficient in that process, it reduces your greenhouse gas footprint per tonne. So we're particularly interested in trying to do that to maximise the food production and reduce the greenhouse gas emissions per tonne of application. It, it will increase to a point where we're getting about um, 80 to 90% of um, potential and, and then it will level off there until we develop new technologies that take yields even higher. And just finally, Graham, anecdotally, have you spoken to many people who after this season's headaches in trying to get their hands on urea, they've said, all right, that's it, we're putting in a shed, we're putting in a silo, whatever it may be, to, to store fertiliser? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you say that. I, I had an email from a grower at West Wyalong who um, was talking about this particular um, on-farm storage of, of fertiliser, this document, and he was he was just complimenting us on producing the document at this time because he was considering doing that on farm just to create that buffer so that when you're managing a large property, the logistics of um, getting all of that in in a timely manner, you do need these buffers on farm. And as you say, with the larger properties, it's 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 uh, truckload after truckload, isn't it? Significant amounts. Yeah, it is. And and uh, when when you see one of these um, B doubles roll into the property and think of the money that's in it. It's something that has to be um, cared for judiciously and and used to optimise its return. So um, it's yeah, it's quite a thing to see um, when you when you think of it in terms of its value. That is GRDC Grower Relations Manager Graham Sandrell there speaking with Angus Verley. It's 19 minutes past 12 here on The Country. Are you with Selena Green today? And Well, speaking of fertiliser and liquid fertilisers in particular, calcareous soils are very common in Australia's southern grain-growing regions, often described as a hostile soil high in calcium carbonate. So how do you fertilise them? Well, for many farmers, that's a liquid fertiliser. Air Peninsula farmer Andrew Polkinghorn wants to study how their use in calcareous soils can be improved, and he's going to be heading overseas to do that as one of eight South Australians to recently receive a prestigious Churchill Fellowship. It's the Caroline Willis Churchill Fellowship, and it's awarded to me to study how farmers use fluid fertilisers on calcareous soils in their farming systems. Background to that is that in the early 2000s there was research done on Upper Air Peninsula which demonstrated very clear advantages to using fluid fertilisers in terms of crop yield and following on from that a group of farmers uh, formed a buying group uh, to purchase fluid fertilisers because they weren't really readily available through the general retail channels. There's now 38 businesses in that group, accounts for about 150,000 hectares of crop 
So every year we tender out our fertiliser requirements, uh, both for phosphorus and also trace elements. The main phosphorus product we use is phosphoric acid, and people will sort of develop their own systems and equipment and so on from then on, but uh, probably in the last 10 years it hasn't really progressed much, and certainly in the last few years, because of the cost of liquid fertiliser versus granule, there's been a little bit of a shift away, so I thought, well, um, it'd be good to see what's happening elsewhere in the world and whether or not there are other products that we can use and other products that may be more cost-effective, perhaps. So this could have some wider-reaching implications because we're talking about, well, I think we're referred to as quite hostile soils, but pretty commonly found in the southern parts of, of the country and here in South Australia? Yes, there are areas of, well, certainly Upper Air Peninsula, Central and Upper Air Peninsula, there's quite a bit of calcareous soil, some parts of the South Australian and Victorian Mallee, uh, and probably extending into New South Wales and New South Wales and places. And also in Western Australia, there's significant areas of calcareous soils. Um, whether or not they're as responsive as the Air Peninsula soils, I'm not dead sure about, but I guess one of the other things about fluid fertilisers is it, it offers a system to carry other things as well, like we can get much more effective trace element uptake, particularly with the zinc. Um, you can use it to put down fungicides or uh, even insecticides so that instead of spraying insecticide over your whole paddock, you're just putting it in the row, which must be environmentally beneficial, one would think. So there's a range of other advantages that go with the fluid fertiliser systems as well. Well, the aim is, well, hopefully to, to find some other methods that are, as you say, more cost-effective but also could uh, hopefully result in some, some higher yields as well? Well, potentially so, but I think... Uh, and the other side of the story, too, is just the, the equipment and systems for handling these products. Phosphoric acid is not a very nice product to handle, but uh, one of my visits I'm going to in Belgium is to a company that specialises in making equipment for handling phosphoric acid. And like as I said, most farmers have just sort of developed their own systems uh, and there's probably scope for improvement in that area. There's also, I'm going to Texas, to a place there where they manufacture equipment for actually mixing liquid fertilisers and I'm very keen to see what equipment they have available there. So it's not just about the actual fertiliser, but it's about you know some of the other things that uh, sit in behind it. The handling as well, yeah. So you mentioned a couple of places that you're off to. It's not the only uh, list on the itinerary. Where else will you be travelling to? Well, I'll be going to Israel um, and actually visiting one of our early suppliers of acid there and they also have some other products which are very interesting. Um, and so that's ICL Fertilisers. I'll also be going to their research development facility in the Netherlands and I also hope to catch up with some Netherlands uh, farmers. Uh, there they obviously have very tight environmental restrictions and a lot of emphasis on carbon footprint and all this sort of thing. So I'm hoping that I can learn what might be ahead of us there and uh, some of the pitfalls. Also going to England, where they do have a significant amount of cacarious soil. They seem quite familiar with some of the issues around it. And I'll also be going to Canada where they have, certainly in parts of Western Canada, uh, liquid fertiliser is routinely used, but again, I want to see how they use it and what the what products they use and how the distribution systems work and all that sort of thing. 
His passport is certainly going to get a workout. That is Air Peninsula farmer Andrew Polkinghorn, who is the recipient of this year's Caroline Welsh Churchill Fellowship. It is 24 minutes past 12. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Time to head to the Weather Bureau for the first time this week. Vince Rollins is our forecaster today. Hi, Vince. Hello, Selena. What's the story as we get another week underway? Yeah, so we're just going to start out this week uh, seeing temperatures just gradually rising. Selena, we've got a high-pressure system just sitting south of Kangaroo, Kangaroo Island at the moment. So just looking at generally... Um, East to southeasterly winds across the, the state today, and we will see those winds as that high pressure system just slowly moves eastwards, just going a bit more east to northeasterly. Temperatures just gradually creeping up, and really the, the peak of the, the days as far as temperature goes would be Wednesday, as we see the winds go more northeast to northwesterly ahead of a, a trough that is going to move across the far southwest probably during the, the sort of late morning and then just continuing to move across the uh, the south and east sorry south and west during Wednesday getting into the far northeast on Thursday and, and clearing so uh, we will see as I said temperatures rising but uh, behind that trough we'll see winds swinging back round to a southwest and uh, bringing some cooler conditions um, still remaining hot in the northeast on Thursday but yeah gradually that uh, that heat will dissipate and we'll go back into a much cooler period again for the sort of Thursday into into Monday of the following week so yeah today though um we are getting a little bit of infeed of moisture into the northeast of the state and there's a little bit of a trough lingering through there so we're actually seeing quite a bit of thunderstorm activity in the far northeast at the moment so there is a chance that could extend a little bit further south down that uh, eastern parts of the the northeast pastoral district but that is expected to clear tomorrow so generally speaking tomorrow not much happening as far as any weather goes maybe a little bit of frost in the the southeast, but uh, yeah, looking fine across most of the state. But on Wednesday, with those winds just picking up a little bit ahead of the trough and those temperatures hitting their peak, um, there is likely to be some elevated fire dangers uh, across some districts at the moment. We're looking at uh, extreme for the west coast and Mount Lofty uh, districts, but uh, yeah, we'll see whether we do get a couple more districts districts uh, in that sort of range over the next couple of days but once that change does go through as I mentioned cooler temperatures there's a bit of shower activity coming behind it as well but at this stage it just looks like it's going to be restricted to the um, southern agricultural area and most likely about the the lower southeast so not expecting too much rainfall on Thursday we'll probably see maybe a millimetre or so about parts of the agricultural area, maybe a few millimetres more about the lower southeast, And that uh, generally continues uh, through to Friday, well, through the weekend but, uh, and then easing during Monday. But uh, again, over that period, probably not looking at any more than um, maybe five millimetres or so about the lower southeast and less than a couple of millimetres elsewhere. Selena, so yeah, mm. unfortunately, if you are... Um, looking to get some rainfall, um, probably not going to see too much in the the following week. Um, hopefully we get some more systems coming through, we might get some showers pushing further north, but with the outlooks looking at drier, warmer conditions, it's yeah, hard to know what's going to happen with these systems as they come through, so we'll have to, to wait and see. Yeah, certainly a bit of a wait and see game. Vince, thanks so much for that. Enjoy the rest of your Monday.
Thank you. Vince Rollins there, who is our senior forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. A chance to have a look at the western inland of New South Wales and the forecast for tomorrow for the Upper Western District. Partly cloudy conditions with a slight chance of a shower. There is a chance of a thunderstorm. Winds will be northwest to northeasterlies, around 15 to 20 k's now, becoming light before the dawn. Overnight temperatures will get to around 15. Daytime temperatures reaching up around 30. For the lower western district, a mostly sunny morning with a chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast in the afternoon and into the evening. Light winds becoming southeasterlies, 15 to 20 k's now early in the morning before becoming light in the evening. Overnight temperatures in the lower western district falling to between 10 and 14 degrees. Daytime temperatures will reach up around 30 degrees. Coming up in this next half an hour, automated drones, electric aircraft, are they closer than you might think? for regional airports and a call for an inquiry into the practices of banks and the way that they lend to farmers here in Australia and the ability of Australia's corporate regulator to follow up bad banking behaviour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. Great to be here for another week of The Country Hour and I'm here until one o'clock today. Coming up in just a moment, well, there's a call for the government to launch an inquiry into the way banks deal with Australian farmers and whether or not Australia's corporate regulator, ASIC, has investigated claims of banking misconduct against farmers. That's to come very shortly. And in this half an hour, you'll also hear how challenging it is for veterinary students to get hands-on experience with treating native animals and how a partnership between one South Australian university and the Cleveland Wildlife Park is changing that. One of the foremost things is that wild animals will get very stressed when they're handled. So you just can't handle them like you would a dog or a cat. They're just not used to it. So what you want a big aspect is teaching them how to uh, sedate and anaesthetise animals, how to handle them safely so they don't get bitten and scratched. More on that to come with some of those students out in the field. But first, let's get news headlines from Matt Coleman. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, the aid group Save the Children says it's anticipating many civilian casualties in Gaza now that Israel has declared war. Israel has bombarded the area with airstrikes in retaliation for a major surprise attack by Hamas fighters who shot civilians and soldiers in Israeli communities along the border. At least 700 people have been killed in Israel and hundreds more have died in Gaza. Police say the 50-year-old pilot involved in a light plane crash in the state's mid-north yesterday died in hospital overnight. Emergency services were called to a property near Crystal Brook in the late afternoon when the Cessna struck power lines and crashed in a field at Meryton. A 24-year-old passenger, also from Red Hill, died at the scene. And the Energy and Water Ombudsman has reported a 16% rise in consumer complaints in the last financial year. Its annual report also found a 26% increase in complaints about billing, with nearly 4,000 received. Electricity bills made up the majority of the issues reported. More news at 1 o'clock. 
Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, a High Court barrister has called for an inquiry into farm lending in Australia and the failure of Australia's corporate regulator to investigate banking misconduct against farmers. A Senate inquiry into the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC, was told that allegations of predatory lending towards farmers were not followed up years after they were highlighted by the Banking Royal Commission. Niall Coburn is a corporate investigator and High Court barrister. He specialises in financial crime. He was also formerly a special special sorry, a senior specialist advisor to ASIC. He gave evidence to this inquiry in the past week where he highlighted the ongoing financial and emotional distress for farmers who've lost their properties to the banks. And I asked him about the farmers he was representing when he gave evidence to the inquiry. So I represent 63 farmers who have been the victims of um, predatory lending and financial malpractice at the hands of all the major banks in Australia. This has occurred probably since um, 2010. Um, Those issues were aired at the Royal Commission in 2017. They weren't actually dealt with because there's so many very serious issues that the banks were involved with at the time. But at the moment, it's um, a real issue for the farmers in Australia. Um, A number of them have owned farms for several generations. And you've given some um, examples of the impact of all that in your submission, as you say, some of these were multi-generational farmers who, who've now lost those properties and, and it's obviously had a pretty substantial impact on their mental health as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, you've got suicides in Australia, you've got um, people who have been thrown off farms who are once very well-known uh, in their district and successful and they were, as uh, receivers were appointed and they were marched off their farms with nothing, just uh, their clothes. Um, and, you know, like their livestock was taken, their farms you know, were taken, the machinery was taken. Um, and this is a renowning theme within Australia. It's a shameful theme. Um, we've got lots of things going on, but these were people who produced a wide variety of agricultural products for Australia over a number of generations, and they've been treated shamefully by the government and by uh, uh, the regulators. Do you see farmers as being particularly vulnerable to to this kind of behaviour, you know, given that they are vulnerable to the markets of climate, yeah. things can go wrong quite quickly? Yeah, so, so absolutely. So what the situation really should be, as it is in overseas and in Europe, they should not be subject to commercial interest rates up to 18%. It's just um, thievery on the part of the banks. And a farmer cannot make a profit if that interest rate is over 5% because of the vicissitudes of you know, the agriculture industry. And unfortunately, in Australia, we pay very high interest rates. Added to that, you've got a weak securities regulator who has to be told what to do um, when we have a royal commission. So has you got the uh, initiative to go out and actually investigate? You've got to be told. So it's been, for my mind, as a lawyer of um, 38 years, it is just a disgraceful situation. And I didn't ask for this. It just came upon me where the farmers approached. They've gone to every angle that they can. And now, you know, what we want is like uh, an inquiry into farm lending in Australia. From what you can see, going back to that Banking Royal Commission and the recommendations that came out from that around how banks should treat vulnerable farmers, from what you can see, have any of those changes been implemented that would stop this kind of thing happening again? So Commissioner Hain had some recommendations that were not set in stone and he said that farmers had to be treated in a certain way before they were 
taken off their property. So there are two classes here. So there are the classes of farmers which occurred before the Royal Commission in 2017, and there's a class of farmers which happened after that Royal Commission. So it's hard for me to answer it because there's many individual situations. But on whole, the farmers aren't being treated fairly by the financial institutions. And I would go so far as to say they are not following the recommendations of um, Commissioner Hain in the way that they are being dealt with. So, for example, what Commissioner Hain said is that when a farmer cannot pay the interest upon interest, that should stop uh, immediately. And from what I have seen, that that hasn't occurred. Interest and fees, etc., are still being charged. Um, he also said that um, the financial institutions need to mediate with the farmers in a meaningful way, and that's never the situation. It's like a, a power play. So, you know, all, all I can say from my experience, and, and, I, and I really say this in good faith, is that this is not happening, and that the financial institutions are really returning back to what they were pre-Royal Commission. As far as this inquiry goes into ASIC and, and its um, actions, in, you have touched on some of this, but in your submission you make a number of recommendations. What would you see as a win for farmers okay. to come out well, of this? Well, what, what needs to happen is that we need to have a mediation for all the farmers. So we don't want to go to litigation because many of these farmers are, are elderly. They've been through the ringer. As you've indicated, there are, are emotional issues. So we want a rigid ditch mediation process set up by the government with the financial institutions so there's a, a meaningful mediation so we can put all these issues to bed which go back you know even to 2010. So although we've had the financial inquiry many of those issues were never actually dealt with because Commissioner Hayne had you know many many financial misconduct issues that he had to deal with so this is uh, an issue in itself and that then we want this actually dealt with. That is corporate investigator and High Court barrister Niall Coburn there uh, and outlining some of the evidence that he gave in this past week to this inquiry. It's a parliamentary joint committee on corporations and financial services. Late last year it began this inquiry into ASIC's capacity and capability to respond to reports of alleged misconduct. It's expected to table its final report by June of next year. But in his opening statement to the inquiry, ASIC's chair Joe Longo said he entirely rejected assertions that ASIC is a weak corporate regulator and pointed to ASIC's enforcement record over the past three years as an effective and effective litigator. Uh, Inquiries ongoing. It is 21 minutes to one. ABC Listen. I'm Helen Norville. And I'm Dale Jennings. And I'm Lee Sales. And I'm Lisa Miller. And we're so excited about the return of the newsreader on ABC TV. But even more exciting is our new companion podcast to the show. It's going to be huge. We'll talk about what's happening in the show, but also give you some context around the real 80s news events. Plus, what was it like working in those newsrooms? The Newsreader Podcast, available now on the ABC Listen app. Well, automated drones, electric aircraft, they could actually be used in regional airports a lot sooner than you think, within a decade. The federal government has put forward the ideas in its recently released Green Paper, looking at the future of Australia's aviation industry. Australian Airports Association Chief Executive James Goodwin told Karen Hunt that while these are exciting possibilities right now, regional airports need financial support. 
Well, we know that regional airports are critical to regional Australia. It's really good to see that the Green Paper has got a particular chapter and a particular focus on looking at regional Australia and regional connectivity. This Green Paper, though, is really, as we've come out of the pandemic, I mean, the pandemic has disrupted so many things, but it's really disrupted aviation. So we've got new business models, we've got different routes, we've got routes that have been cancelled, we've got different airlines uh, entering the market. So what this Green Paper is doing is looking at those policy and regulatory settings so that we can get through this recovery phase and look ahead to the future. One of the things that is suggested in the Green Paper is that perhaps within a few years even, regional airports could be seeing the deployment of helicopter-sized electric aircraft. Is that something that you think is even feasible? Look, it is quite exciting and it's almost a bit Jetsons era to have these electric aircraft flying around. They're called the advanced air mobilities. They're not quite a helicopter and they're not quite an aircraft. They're somewhere in between. But this is quite an exciting new development. And in fact, when you look to the Brisbane Olympics in 2032, they're saying that these will be flying around for them. So this is happening. But I can see that there's some benefits for regional and regional tourism in particular. We know that if you arrive maybe on a commercial airline into a regional town or city, you might then need to get to the vineyard or the resort or wherever you might be staying. So these are the sorts of aircraft that might be able to take you those extra 20 uh, or 30 kilometres or so to get you right there. They're going to be electric, so that's a whole new energy form, so they're going to be quieter and and so on. And down the future, I mean, they're even talking that these things could be autonomous. Think about how these could also benefit regional Australia to get freight and supplies in and out. You can imagine with a road cut off because of floods or bushfires or so, these potentially could be a resource for those natural disasters. Also, what about medical evacuations and so on, potentially? Being able to get a smaller, more nimble, more flexible aircraft in and out is also quite important and something that certainly we should be looking at. With so many regional airports funded through local councils these days, is it going to be financially feasible? We want to make sure that we've got aerodromes and airports that have got the infrastructure that can support the aircraft that we need now as well as the ones that we need into the future the regulatory burden is increasing. The safety, security burdens are increasing. So through this white paper process, saying to the government, the regional airports need support for critical safety infrastructure as well as security infrastructure as well. That won't be a lot of money to the federal government, but it'll make a big difference to a lot of those regional communities. What we want is um, an extension of the regional airports program and an extension of the remote airstrip program because the infrastructure is old. They're starting to reach that end of life and needing that increase in infrastructure support. And we know that there's added pressure with more extreme weather. So more floods, higher temperatures and so on is also having an impact on the quality of the pavement and the infrastructure that we've got there at aerodromes. Is it also the case that a completely different view of airports in regional areas may be needed? Airports are really good to get people where they need to go. But airports are also facilitators of freight and supply chain logistics. I think we need a whole new thinking about airports and aerodromes and their value to the economy. And decision makers, politicians need to stop thinking of airports as just being for people who are going on holidays. What's the timeline on this green paper? 
Submissions uh, need to be in by the end of November. Uh, we're expecting that the white paper, which is the recommendations coming out of the green paper, that should be starting to come up to the surface uh, around mid-2024. So what we'd be looking at in mid-2024 is the recommendations. What are some changes that need to be made to policy or regulatory settings? But the other thing that we will be looking for is there needs to be funding that goes with it. There needs to be funding support for regional Australia and those regional areas aerodromes, funding for infrastructure, funding for security screening for those airports that have the passenger services, and also um, funding for that safety upgrades that might be needed. James Goodwin from the Australian Airports Association. Tim Coote is the CEO of the District Council of Sejuna and says the viability of the Sejuna Airport is the prime concern for the region. Whatever the future of air transportation is going to be um, there's no question that considering our location and the nature of South Australia the airport's going to be an important part of the basis of the viability of Sejuna and its economic development. How much does it cost council to run an airport? (laughs) Um, Well obviously it depends on the sort of airport and the nature of the transport that goes through it. We have a passenger service. We also have charter services which provide flights to the mines principally. We are one of the identified 40% of airports which are owned and operated by councils in Australia that don't make money. We were at numbers where the airport was uh, basically viable um, and then numbers have gone down. The Green Paper suggests some alternative methods of transport than what is available now. Do you see that as contributing to that viability? Without being an expert in civil aviation, even though it it recognises that the pace is fast, it seems like there is a lot of regulatory and investigatory work to be done before we get to different modes of transport and then afterwards different modes of transport being viable here. In the paper it does talk about different modes of transport with different forms of both transport for freight and for travel. However, just in different Air Navigation Commission panels, um, it lists 17 different ones which need to come together and consult. Whatever the case may be, the critical nature of having air travel for us in all forms, there's a whole range of knock-on effects that we see that comes up regularly. They are going to continue to be important in whatever form transport's going to take. That's the CEO of the Seduna District Council, Tim Coote, speaking there with Karen Hunt. The 2023 ODI World Cup is here. Hi, I'm David Warner. Join me for every ball. Pull shot. Struck it nicely. Straight to the field. Every catch. Playing, edging, out, scored behind. And every big hit. Lofted it over, log on and away for six. Listen live on the ABC Listen app. Look for the World Cup button. This is a World Cup you won't want to miss. The 2023 ODI World Cup. Whips it for six. What a shot. ABC Sport, your home of cricket. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. You're with Selena Green on this Monday afternoon and it's 13 minutes to one. Well, if you picture a veterinarian at work, you might imagine them attending to a sick dog, a cat, or maybe out on a farm tending to uh, livestock. A good chunk of many vets' day-to-day work involves caring for native wildlife. So how do you train up for that? 
Well, a new relationship between the University of Adelaide and Cleland is giving future vets some vital hands-on experience. And students from the University School of Animal and Veterinary Sciences have been at Cleland this past week performing health checks on the animals while also learning about their role in education, research and conservation. Associate Professor Wayne Boardman is leading the students through the experience. He was busy out in the field when he told Karen Hunt how this all came about. Um, in the Cleveland Wildlife Park, we're just starting a, a swamp wallaby uh, for the students uh, okay. to do a health check, up, check on the animal. So I've just pulled myself away while uh, the students are uh, dealing with the uh, animal. Okay. Ah, live so, on the job. We love this. It is. It's very live. On the, um, so the opportunity arose with Kathy Burbage, who became the senior vet at uh, Cleveland Wildlife Park, and she is a colleague of mine and one of our graduates from the University of Adelaide Vet School. Uh, and so it was a great opportunity to be able to develop a relationship with Cleveland to allow our veterinary students to be able to undertake uh, placement. And, uh, and we're doing an elective rotation uh, with Kathy, um, so working with all the wild animals at Cleveland Wildlife Park. So what sort of uh, things have your students been doing? So these guys are uh, final year students. They're only about two or three months away from qualifying. And so in the final year of the, the curriculum, we get them to do as much hands-on practical experience as possible. So what we've been doing this week has been pretty pretty busy. We've been doing sur- surgical procedures on Tamar wallabies. We've examined possums uh, that have been sick, echidna. Uh, we've been looking at red-tailed fascogal breeding program. Uh, and we've also been doing some swamp wallaby uh, anaesthesia and health checks as well. How important is it that your students have this opportunity to get hands-on with these uh, types of animals as part of their studies? A lot of veterinarians that when they graduate do spend quite a bit of time uh, with wildlife and it has always been my ambition to give as much exposure to our students as we possibly could uh, so that when they graduate they are you know more familiar with working with uh, wildlife more and more graduates veterinarians are working with wildlife um, and animals are brought in they're sick and injured to clinics and so on and i want them to be uh, confident to be able to deal with these animals and be and have a good level of knowledge and being able to handle them and making the right decisions about what needs to be done with these animals. Before this program started, was it difficult for your students to get access to these wild animals to practice on them as opposed to getting their hands on with domestic animals? Domestic animals is a lot simpler because they are domesticated. So these are wild animals, of course, even though they're in a wildlife park. Cleveland Wildlife Park is, has got lots of you know, wild animals, of course, and some of them are in captivity in areas that visitors can look at them, but they are still wild. And so they're not approachable, not like a dog or a cat. Uh, and so we have to use sort of different, different techniques. You know, we have to dart them. We have to learn how to catch them, need to learn how to handle them, and need to learn about what some of the health issues that they get. Um, and this includes all the birds and the reptiles, some of the animals that are, are confiscated and from Department of Environment then have to come to Cleveland to be held. So they, they need to be able to handle all these animals when they go back into their practice, when they become graduates, 
And so this is just an invaluable experience for them. And it also allows them to get a greater understanding of the conservation programs that are being run through Cleveland Wildlife Park. Now, you mentioned that in general practice, many vets have to deal with wild animals, but does it become also a speciality within the veterinary practice module? It does, it does. So we, I, I'm a specialist wildlife veterinarian, and so I, I specialise in that uh, area uh, and also in the area of um, conservation, veterinary support for conservation programmes. Uh, and so it's great that we have this opportunity with myself to allow students to learn about some of the programmes I'm involved in in terms of research, but also uh, use my connections like with Cathy, to be able to develop this fantastic working relationship with uh, Cleveland Wildlife Park. And it, it really fulfills their reason for being, you know, uh, Cleveland, which is about education and exposure to you know, visitors, to all the uh, work that they're doing uh, and to all the wildlife in South Australia. And, you know, it helps us develop our students to become more rounded, more experienced graduates um, when they go out into practice. Well, while the students are there, what sort of challenges do they face when they handle these animals? I know that, you know, vet students normally learn how to restrain a dog or something like that. Do they have to learn specific things like that when dealing with wildlife? Oh, absolutely. So the, one of the foremost things is that, you know, animals will get very, very stressed. Wild animals will get very stressed uh, when they're handled. So you just can't handle them like you would a dog or a cat. They're just not used to it. So we have to think about how we're going to sedate them or anaesthetise them. And so we've got what you want a big aspect is teaching them how to uh, sedate and anaesthetise animals, how to handle them safely so they don't get bitten uh, and scratched and so on, which is always a bit of an issue. And also not to injure the animals as well at the same time, because if we were to um, just handle them and manhandle them, that would probably kill them from a stress-related problem. So what we need to date them and tranquilise them and make sure that they're uh, okay to handle. And then once we've got them suitably sedated or anaesthetised, we can uh, do a full examination and uh, treat them. We're also interested in looking at the population health. Because of the disturbance of the environment by man's activities, what we're seeing is a lot more diseases coming from wildlife and, you know, being able to do surveillance of diseases that might might possibly transmit into what about humans in the future is an important aspect of this uh, and it's a big worldwide problem also that a lot of diseases can be transmitted into humans from wildlife and so being doing surveillance of the the populations is really important. So we have an organisation called Wildlife Health Australia that we work with within the University of Adelaide to provide uh, help and support in uh, diagnosing any new emerging diseases that might occur in wildlife, some of which might cause biodiversity loss, but others that might cause uh, disease in people. As Associate Professor Wayne Boardman from Adelaide Uni speaking with Karen Hunt. Well, Cathy Burbridge is the senior vet at Cleland Wildlife Park and Karen asked her what the value was of a partnership like this for Cleland. There's a huge value in it for both Cleland and the students and for um, anybody who wants to learn about wildlife conservation medicine. Um, in our case, we get a lot of hands-on help and we've been managing to do 
a lot of macropod procedures and we've done a lot of health assessments, um, much diagnostic work here that I would be doing um, with my locum vets just during the week and they've actually managed to do a lot of work that, of that for us. But also in three months' time, all of these students will graduate, they'll become clinicians out in, in practice and on average in, in different clinics across Australia, they'll see about 20% of their caseload will be Australian native wildlife. Um, and while they learn a lot on domestic animals and livestock at, at uni, it's difficult to get hands-on practical experience with Australian native wildlife. So they're getting a lot of that here this week. What's a typical day like for you as the head vet there that maybe one of these students could aspire to? Oh, a typical day. I don't know if there's any real constant. It's different every day and that's what makes the job so interesting and so worthwhile. Uh, there are all sorts of things that occur. The big storm, for example, there may be a lot of possums or other animals affected by the storm. Or on another normal day, we'll be doing health assessments in a population that we're looking to move. Sometimes we will capture animals and give them a thorough health assessment and do some clinical testing of them. And they'll be destined for other institutions or other zoos or wildlife parks around the country and, and swapping genetic material with that sort of Different transfers and relocations of animals occurs all the time between zoos and institutions, so we may be doing that. Um, we're involved in several threatened species and endangered species breeding and rehabilitation or reintroduction programs, and so we'll look at the health of all those animals. We also do a lot of preventative health, so um, looking at parasites and making sure that no parasite get, load gets high, and we're aiming to get the best possible practice for the healthcare of all of our animals, and so there's always something to do. It's pretty busy. We're also on the lookout for things like the high pathogenicity avian influenza, which Australia does not have yet, but we have a lot of waterfowl here, so we're also looking out for those sorts of things. Um, and then generally also other rangers and some other people will bring in animals that they need help with and we can look after them as well. There's always something different. It, it's no real typical day here. It, we do plan the week a little bit ahead. Some things need a bit more planning, but there's always cases that come in that we haven't planned for that we will just then ride with and, and treat them as if we would in a normal clinic. Sounds like a fascinating job, and I don't think you'd have too many boring days. That is Kathy Burbage there, who's the senior vet, senior vet at Cleveland Wildlife Park, and she was speaking there to Karen Hunt. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today, but not for much longer, because it's almost time for the news, and to hand over to Jason Chong, who'll be bringing you afternoons today. Hi, Jason. Afternoon, Selena. What have you got for us on this Monday? Well, on this show today, um, police have solved a 40-year-old missing person case on Kangaroo Island using cutting-edge DNA technology. So we're going to find out a little bit more about that. Um, there's also, obviously, a lot of news coming out of uh, Israel at the moment, so we'll get the, uh, the latest on that. And if you, have you ever had shingles? No. I got the chicken pox, though, as an adult, and that, oh. was, uh, that was horrible enough, I can tell yeah. you that. Yeah, no, I had pretty nasty stuff. Yeah, I've heard it a couple of times, and it's awful. Uh, anyone who's had shingles would know how much it sucks. But mm. there might be a vaccine on the horizon, so uh, and it could be free for some people. So we, we'll find out a bit more about that. Fantastic. That sounds like some good news. Thanks, Jason. Have a great show. You too. Jason Chong, he'll be bringing you afternoons on this Monday. That's about it for me. Thanks so much for your company today. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow for more Country Hour. If you'd like to keep across all of the uh, latest rural news, hop on our website, which is abc.net.au. 
forward slash rural. Lots of great stories on there at the moment, including around the cost of meat. Well, that is uh, well, maybe not coming down as fast at the supermarket as farmers would like. And all of the different ways that hemp is being grown and used in Australia. It can be used even in bulletproof vests. There you go. So hop on the website and check it out. And don't forget the ABC Listen app is a great way to catch up on all of the great ABC content, including the country that you might have missed. It's news time now. It's just going on one o'clock. The ABC Listen app lets you take ABC Radio with you wherever you go. At home, in the gym, up a ladder, on the road, interstate, out of space. Download the ABC Listen app today. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.